Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. In the months leading up to November, Donald Trump made it pretty clear he was banking his hopes for re-election on one particular group. Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? In his many odes to suburban housewives and rants about urban violence invading their white picket fence neighborhoods, Trump never actually spoke the words white women. He didn't need to. This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured and often frustrating politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election when so many of us realized that we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in helping to build a country that reflected the values we profess to hold. By now, most of us know that a majority of white women, once again, backed Donald Trump. And although it appears that many suburbanites did swing left, especially in key states, Trump more than made up for that by attracting a new group of women, those living in rural communities and small towns. His appeals to housewives, and I say that with huge air quotes, seemingly worked. So what is it about the idea of the suburbs that still holds so much power, even among voters who don't live in them? Why are people so drawn to the mythical family ideal that Trump was trying to evoke? Why do white women hear housewife and think, yes, he's talking about me, even if they don't live in the suburbs and they aren't actually housewives? To answer that, let's start with that mythical family ideal, that kind of family that we associate with peak 1950s nostalgia, the breadwinner father, the homemaker mother, and the 2.5 kids. This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. They eat dinner together every night. They probably have a dog named Spot or Rover, and they have a house, which they own, in a neighborhood that's neither rural nor urban. Ah, the American dream. But the truth is, this entire familial structure is hardly an American tradition. If anything, it's an aberration. It's one of the misconceptions that um, everybody seems to have, is that the traditional nuclear family is the historical norm. Nicole Sussner Rogers runs Family Story, a think tank that fights against family privilege, essentially the leg up that society gives to white nuclear families. If we go back before World War II, we see a long legacy of extended families and multi-generational living. That is the American tradition. Many women, married or single, have always had to work in some capacity. They couldn't afford not to. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a generation of white women began marrying at much lower rates than their predecessors. Childlessness for American women at one point neared 30%. 
Rebecca Traster is a writer and columnist for New York Magazine and The Cut, who specializes in gender and politics. Rebecca is also the author of All the Single Ladies, a book about American marriage. And in fact, that move away from marriage created such a massive backlash that it's part of how we got to the mid 20th century early hetero marriage imperative that we sort of recognized from the 1950s. On the heels of this marriage dip came World War II. Young men left jobs en masse to fight overseas. Women were welcomed, temporarily, into the workforce. When the war ended in 1945, the U.S. was at a sort of social crossroads. Rebecca says that it was the culmination of several trends in white communities, lower marriage rates, newly minted career women, and the return of World War II veterans that led to what she calls the Norman Rockwell vision of married life becoming a government imperative. Here's how it worked. If this future husband was going to support a wife and kids, if he was going to earn enough money to keep his wife out of the workforce, well, he needed a good education. So the GI Bill was created, which helped finance veterans' college degrees. When a couple did marry, they needed somewhere to live. Somewhere with enough space for kids. The government helped with that too, offering mortgages through the GI Bill and investing in the construction of what were initially called bedroom communities. For all of this to work, women had to leave the jobs they'd stepped into when the men went off to war. Here's Nicole Rogers again. The impetus for that becoming, for a short period, the most sort of normative family unit, was that uh, at the end of World War II, as men were coming back from war, the women who had taken their jobs needed to get out of those jobs so that the men could reclaim them and go back into the home. But businesses couldn't just fire a generation of women who'd grown increasingly independent, socially and financially, and pretend like that cultural shift had just never happened. And so there was an entire push, an entire market built around sort of selling the American dream. We wanted the real McCoy, a place of our own. Not just any old place, though, but a place of which every average man could proudly say, this is my home. As something where there was a homemaker whose, whose new domain was the home. Right then, Gillian explained her problem to the singer girl. The problem of making not only clothes for herself, but furnishings for a complete home. You kept a perfect home. There was products being sold to you. You know, three weeks ago, I couldn't have accepted that invitation. Like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs, and Dave needs the car every day for business. But ultimately, it was in service of getting men's jobs back. Mary Jo Wiggins is a lawyer and professor at the University of San Diego, where she specializes in real estate discrimination. She's also an expert of sorts on, you guessed it, the suburbs. Common characteristics of suburbs that they've shared over you know, many, many years in this country, at least, is, you know, the idea that suburbs are peripherally located relative to urban areas, that they have low density, that they have architectural and aesthetic similarity within the community, that they have economic and social sameness, that they're uh, homogenous economically and socially, and that they are easy to access, right? Um, Typically, not hard to get in and out. But in some respects, the architectural and aesthetic features of the mid-20th century suburbs were less important than their other defining characteristic, 
racial segregation and exclusion. It really does function in our public discourse as a form of shorthand for white and urban for black. And we see this when we see suburban women lumped together in a category in our minds and linguistically as white women and other women, women of color, are not framed in that group, in that conversation as being included. This is a really important point. Today, the suburbs are no longer categorically white. About 30% of suburban residents are people of color. As Professor Wiggins' research has demonstrated, some suburbs are majority black. In fact, she grew up in one and still lives in one today. Yet cultural images of suburbs as racially homogeneous spaces endure. Why are whiteness and suburbia so linked in our cultural memory? Let's be clear, it was by design. The racial segregation that characterized American suburbs was no accident. Whiteness was often a requirement for the suburbs and subsequently for the American dream. Here's Rebecca Traster again. Starting in the mid 20th century, when you actually see black Americans kind of barred from those government investments, for example, it was much harder for African-American returning soldiers to take advantage of the GI Bill, both because many colleges wouldn't admit black students and because it was harder for, for black students to take four years and go to, go to school economically. Blacks were specifically barred from many of the suburbs that the government was investing in for white families. There was racism within the, within the labor movement that made it harder for African-Americans to have the labor protections that were securing their jobs. A lot of the highways and infrastructure investments that the government was making were cutting off black communities within cities from jobs, from public transportation. And so there was an economic withering in black communities because they were being cut off from many of these investments. And what happens then is you actually begin to see black marriage rates go down in part because when you don't have those kinds of investments and here's your house and here's your great public school and here's your job opportunities and your union protected job opportunities, when you don't have those kinds of investments, it becomes much more challenging to say, wow, let's make this nuclear family. American social policy didn't provide black couples with incentives for marrying early or for having the 2.5 kids. And as a result, black marriage rates began to slow down. But the economic incentives for white Americans abounded, and subsequently, so did marriage rates. Each element fit together, another rung on the ladder to the American dream. Here's a great public school district we've established. Here's your bi-level suburban home. Here's financial support to help you own that home. Here's a highway we built to deliver you from that home, right to your job and back again. And it's accompanied by all of this social pressure, um, all kinds of nasty messages about unmarried white women coming in magazines and you're a spinster. And um, if you don't have a boyfriend, what's wrong with you? In the early 20th century, a lot of colleges had, and, and secondary schools had been founded for women and you had women in college in higher rates. But by the mid 20th century, these messages were coming saying nobody, no man wants a college educated woman. Lots of women were dropping out of these colleges that they'd only recently won the right to go to in order to get married. Today, we associate those family ideals with a form of conservative politics. I mean, after all, we started this episode with Trump begging housewives for their support. A generation of conservative politicians, spurred on by white evangelical Christian and other social conservative activists, have fully embraced the mantle. God performed the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. 
and it was God's idea to have a family in the first place. And the family is the most important institution in the world. But the nuclear family was not always a partisan issue. In the 1930s and 1940s, liberal politicians were just as involved, perhaps even more so, in pushing for its initial success. But things began to change in the 1960s and 1970s. Here's Rebecca. For a long time, marriage, hetero marriage, was the institution that organized power, responsibility, and labor along gendered lines. There needed to be money to pay for housing, to pay for food. And marriage was the organization that said, okay, one kind of person earns the money, that's a man. Then there needed to be somebody who did the work of caring for the children, cleaning the house, cooking the food, preparing the food. And marriage was the organization that said, that's the wife. You were also, women were also, of course, dependent on marriage if they wanted to have a sex life because so many cultural norms up until very recently not only frowned on, but uh, made life horrible for, for anyone who had a sex life outside of marriage. If they wanted to have children that were socially not ostracized or punished for being born outside of wedlock, right? Marriage was the institution that contained all of these facets of adult life. And women were dependent on it. These cultural shifts in the family had major political implications. Once liberals stopped orienting their policymaking around the promotion of the nuclear family, conservatives stepped in. But whereas liberals initially conceptualized the nuclear family as something deserving of support with a social safety net and other kinds of social programs, conservatives viewed the family differently. Suddenly, it was an institution that needed to be protected. From the 1970s and 80s onward, our politics began evoking family as something under threat. So I asked Robert Self, a historian at Brown University, from what exactly? There are many potential enemies or threats to that family. Um, there might be moral threats, like reproductive mm -hmm. rights might be seen as a moral threat. Pornography might be seen as a moral threat to the family. The so-called threat of uh, non-white people, in particular the linking of uh, of crime rates and non-white uh, Americans was particularly powerful. The demonization of people of color, particularly black people, was central to the creation of the mythic suburban family ideal. By focusing on the threats, conservatives were doing something else too, creating a definition of and a vision of whiteness. But another way to think about it is to think about what whiteness means the kind of cementing of crime and families of color, particularly black families and particularly black individuals, that that's a really powerful threat to the, to the quote, traditional nuclear family. In, a, in an ad, who gets to be a housewife in, uh, in a media portrayal or in, or in a politician's imagination? Who gets to stand for the family under threat? Um, those are the kinds of questions, you know, and it's often that's often part of what's embedded in whiteness is that which is deserving of protection, that which mm -hmm. is deserving right of preservation. So in some kind, in, in those kinds of formulations, it's not so much the, the kind of failure or the weakness or the threat of people of color is is in the background. It's always there, but it's in the background, and what gets emphasized is. Um, 
the kinds of families that deserve our attention. It's here, at this intersection of morality, family values, and racism, that we get a clear view of how the 1950s homemaker evolved into shorthand for Trump's base. By positioning the nuclear family, and particularly suburban women, as something deserving of reverence and protection, conservatives managed to weaponize a specific brand of whiteness. This is not new. But why are conservatives so invested in its maintenance? Who does it really benefit? Here's Nicole Rogers. Pretty clear answer, white men. It provides a level of caretaking for them they wouldn't otherwise have. It provides a level of sort of insularity from attack. There's a, there's a way in which married men are considered to be somehow more civilized. Um, when, when men are not married, they're, they tap into more of their base or aggressive instincts and mm-hmm. marriage sort of civilizes them in some way. Um, but again, it also allows them, most importantly, to maintain and continue to um, even gain power. The maintenance of their power depends on somebody else doing all of the work for them. That's where white women step in. They essentially have a role that is largely supportive and secondary to the needs and wants and and, um, ambitions of white men. And obviously in real life, it doesn't feel like that. They think of this as sort of just doing what's best for their families. But I think ultimately, if you take a, a really um, clear-eyed look at it, they're doing what's best for, for white patriarchy. And it's not just that uprooting the traditional nuclear family would disrupt life for individual white men. It disrupts whole systems of power. It's also based in a very kind of conservative right-wing religious idea of, of gender roles that a lot of people still hold very close. Focus on the family and the big kind of conservative family groups really believe that these gender roles when it comes to family are God-ordained. If white women were to reject the idea that they needed husbands to be economically sound, to be validated socially, to be able to be sort of the ambitious people that they, many of them want to be, the entire project for them would crumble. So conservatives have good reason to fear the political consequences of white women breaking from the traditional nuclear family. Because although majorities of white women have voted Republican for decades, there are some meaningful differences among subsets of white women. And one of those dimensions that divides white women politically, it turns out, is marriage. Here's Rebecca again. The voting gap is unmarried white women tend to vote more to the left and married white women vote to the right. There are lots of reasons that contribute to the marriage gap. One is that married white women tend to be older and older people tend to be more conservative. Another is that some married white women receive voting pressure from their more conservative husbands. It's a dynamic that Hillary Clinton acknowledged in the wake of her 2016 loss. But another is more subtle, that because married women are more closely connected to white men, they become more invested in protecting their perceived interests. Nicole Rogers. I think there's some way in which for for a white woman like myself who's progressive, it's hard to understand how that could be until you look at, I think, the social forces in their own lives and the idea that whether it's 
explicit or not, there's a, they're very much influenced as well by, by the men in their lives. Again, and not only by this desire to keep the peace and um, not kind of create political battles within their home and sort of go along, get along, but also for a lot of these white women, they're too busy kind of running homes. They don't actually read as much news. They're not as engaged as much politically. And they can't see the feminist solidarity, how that could help them, but they can very much see how alignment with what they consider to be the best interests of their white husbands. In short, white women aligning their politics with the white men in their lives is how Republicans maintain power. And once you understand that, you can understand something else. Why conservatives are so invested in promoting the notion of marriage. Why they talk about marriage, not only as a religious or moral good, but as an economic one. Conservative think tanks have even developed a handy formula that they call the success sequence. It says that individuals can avoid poverty by taking three simple steps in life, graduating from high school, getting a full-time job, and getting married before they have children. It may sound good, but the marriage part of the formula doesn't actually hold up. A majority of poor families, it turns out, are headed by married couples. So why do conservative politicians promote this stuff? Because they have a political investment in keeping white women married. As Rebecca would say, early and often. Nicole Rogers' organization, Family Story, has a term for this, marriage fundamentalism. They've authored a report on how this idealized version of the nuclear family has been put into action. We've essentially enshrined in our laws and policies this notion that the married two-parent family, um, particularly the, the heterosexual nuclear family, is sort of the superior type. And so we have a lot of policies that both are designed around that and in that image and that are intended to help create more of those families. For example, marriage promotion programs, the primary one being the sort of Healthy Marriage and Families Initiative. And these are programs, um, government programs that are basically spending millions of dollars to promote the idea of marriage as a solution for sort of family stability and also incorrectly <laughs> um, a way for financial stability and a way out of poverty for people. And what that money could ultimately be going towards, which is a piece of the harm story, is things that actually have proven results like food stamps, like the types of interventions, government interventions that actually help people, whereas something like marriage promotion actually has a track record of failure since its existence. Nicole and Rebecca make a compelling case for how white women's political interests are shaped through marriage and their close relationships with white men. But it's a vast overstatement to say that married white women are only voting for their husband's interests. In our last episode, we heard from Elizabeth Gillespie McRae, the historian who has studied the ways that white women have actively worked to uphold white supremacy throughout American history. She says we should stop being surprised that white women, married or single, suburban, urban, or rural, vote Republican. There's this continual surprise that animates our current discussion, particularly in the media, about white women, <laughs> right? It's always like, oh, we're surprised they voted for Donald Trump. 
And I think it speaks to a real reluctance to recognize the very political consciousness and the very political investments of women in general, that there is a real persistence in the way Americans talk about women's political activism that is undergirded by a belief that women are sort of more (laughs) politically moral. I don't know. I don't have a good term for it. And it's kind of biological reductionism, right? Because women are able to have children, that means they're essentially nicer people. (laughs) That's a real bastardization of it. But I think that there is that notion that undergirds politics and that women should act a certain way in the political sphere. And this defies all a lot of historical evidence, but it is really hard to uproot. So what we see today is this idea that women on the right supporting white supremacist politics and supporting a new iteration of racial segregation are somehow operating under a false consciousness. And I think it's important to understand that some women see that their interests as white women are upheld by white supremacist politics. It is not that they think they're voting against their interests, they're voting for their interest. And if we're honest, that belief in white women's goodness, our morality, our ability to empathize with others who experience oppression, It's probably why white women remain such an obsession for the left today as well. And why every election cycle, we invest so much in getting them to flip. If, you know, a few percentage points worth of white married women move from right to left, you know, by some counts, that would be the ballgame for for Republicans. (laughs) Um, uh, Which is one of the reasons that white suburban women are very often one of the most fetishized and sought after demographics. And you can see that going back historically, the soccer, the fetishization of the soccer moms, the, um, you know, the sort of polling of white suburban women is right up there with like white guys in diners, as far as the things that political consultants obsess about, I think often, to the great detriment of the vast numbers of other voters who remain under attended to and under catered to by our political process. But 2018 was an example of how it, it is conceivable that you could see some shift. But interestingly, I think those that shift in 2018 didn't come because political consultants had gone in and tailored candidates to appeal specifically to white suburban women, which is often the kind of strategizing you hear coming out of sort of Beltway, Washington. We'll devote a future episode to dissecting what happened in the suburbs with white women in 2018, and again this November. But for today, let's end with this takeaway. There are valid reasons why political campaigns target suburban white women. But by focusing our political lens so intently on them, we neglect other, equally, or even more important pieces of the political landscape. What they do is they fetishize the white women who are, you know, perfidiously more likely to vote Republican on any given day anyway. They prioritize white women at the incredible expense of black women who are their party base. The party would not exist without black women. Um, Black women do the labor. They are the, they are the engine of the democratic party. 
They are the Democratic Party's most reliable voters. And yet, because they're sort of taken for, because they are in fact taken for granted, uh, all this attention can go to the to white women and especially suburban white women who might otherwise vote Republican who, you know. And so I feel very anxious to point that out and point out that in focusing on, on suburban white women, you, you, you sort of take some of the blame off of the, off of the white men. In the coming weeks, we'll apply what we're learning about the past to the present and get to the critical questions like, why are white women so late to the game? And what are we going to do about it? But first, we'll do one final dive into history to round out the picture of what maintains white women as such a conservative voting bloc. White women have a powerful self-interest in maintaining white supremacy, as we learned last week. And marriage and family, specifically their proximity to white men, also helps shape their political interests. But there's something else that conservatives do really well. They organize. Next week on White Picket Fence. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Edie Allard. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler One. See you next week. Politics has been in need of a rebrand for a dog's age. Girl and the Gov, the podcast, aims to make that daydream a reality. The podcast presented by Girl and the Gov is an active civic resource for millennials to engage with the political space in an approachable way without the fancy jargon and catty chit-chat. The show, co-hosted by Sammy Cantor and Maddie Medved, answers the questions everyone is thinking, but no one wants to ask, through engaging interviews with political experts and a segment dedicated to, you guessed it, stupid questions. Get to know politics in a whole new light by listening and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.